You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the program. My name is Chris Spangle. Today we are talking to Dr. Eric Larson, who is the host of the newest show on the We Are Libertarians podcast network, Paradox, P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. going to talk about how he has approached his program and then also talk a little bit about how he's approached it during COVID. So stay tuned right after these words. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Warning. This show is for adults by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. If you struggle to understand politics, we explain it from an independent, libertarian point of view. With all of the irreverence it deserves, we toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, Chris Spangle, a 15-year veteran of politics and media. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. And before we start, I want to thank all of the members of Wall Plus. We are Libertarians Plus. As you're the reason that this show and network exist, and you can support the show by visiting joinwallplus.com and learn about all the great benefits of subscribing. Like, you get 1,500 different past episodes. All the archives are on there. You get commercial-free shows, uh, and you get some merch. You also just get to support the show and the network. And trust me, if you get value out of this, then please give value back to us. We are always growing and expanding. We didn't grow too much last year. I was frankly burned out and had a lot going on and COVID and moving and marriages. Uh, but we are back in fighting shape, looking lean this year, and we're so happy you're with us. And we want to especially thank our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Casey Feldposh, Lars Nordskog, Jake Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. So thank you both so much. Um, now, our guest today is Dr. Eric Larson, who is the host of the Paradox Podcast, and it is where he, a doctor, a trained anesthesiologist up in Michigan, gets together with another doctor, and they talk about healthcare innovation, uh, and that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. We're going to talk about his background, we're going to talk about medical innovation, how he has approached his show 
with things like COVID uh, and a little bit about his podcast. He has a great show, and the number one thing that we are always asked about is, how do we reform healthcare? How can we learn a little bit more about this? And and uh, his show is a great insight into new ways of medicine. We talk a little bit about direct primary care physicians and that model of medicine that kind of opts out of the just sort of the status quo of healthcare. And I'm really excited that he has joined the network because he's, as you will hear, a very level-headed, thoughtful person who's just trying to look at things the way that we look at here at the Chris Spangle Show about, all right, what, what what are the facts, the figures, what is everybody saying? Let's kind of think of this in a consensus way, put this together and figure out what's true. And so we're happy to have him on the network. He's going to be a great, great show, great resource for you listeners who want to know more about medical innovation, what's going on with COVID, and just so you can get all kinds of information to help make good decisions for you and your family. So I'm not going to blather on. I know I want to get to the interview here with Dr. Eric Larson of the Paradox Podcast. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. As I mentioned in the open, I am excited to welcome Dr. Eric Larson to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Uh, it is a welcome addition, and obviously, honestly, when we did uh, last year a survey of our audience, we had uh, probably a couple hundred entrants, and healthcare was the number one issue, both health insurance, healthcare, and uh, we were really excited when uh, Dr. Larson reached out to us to bring his podcast to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. It is called Paradox, The Paradox, P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, because he talks to another doctor, so it's a paradox. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dad joke. Yes, it's a dad joke. Uh, and I really enjoy a show. I've learned a lot listening to it. I think you will, too. I'd love for you to go subscribe on wearelibertarians.com or in anywhere. Uh, and so, with that, I want to welcome Dr. Eric Larson both to the network and to the show. Thank you so much for coming aboard. We're really excited to have you on the network. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I'm real excited to be here, and I'm part of the network, too. Yeah, you know, you have a great voice. You reminded me of my own doctor, Dr. Kerstaff. And and when I'm talking to him, it's almost like, uh, do, do they teach you AMSR in medical school, like to have that, that like, you have like this very nice, soothing voice. So, you know, when the pandemic kills all of us, uh, and th- like you, it just, you deliver in the podcast, uh, you know, these, these big concepts in just such a friendly way. And I really wonder if that's like a doctor thing. Do they, did they teach you how to have such a nice voice? It's funny because I always thought my voice was terrible, right? You know, you're used, <laughs> Me right. too. Uh, yeah, no, actually, well, I'm an anesthesiologist, right, by trade, and so I have to really calm people down and just so you know, take a nice deep, deep breath in mm. and deep breath out, all the way from nose down to your toes. Breathe in, breathe out, wax on. <laughs> yeah, somebody's going to wreck their and, car. Yeah, only for, only forty year olds get that joke when I do that in the OR, but um, with the Karate Kid. Reference. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's just I just started the the podcast. And I've had a number of people tell me that, which I've found strange because I, I, you know, 
like anyone, I think you don't, you don't sound like you think you sound when you uh, record your voice and listen to it later. So it never sounds like me, but I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad people like it. I hate my voice too. And I mean, I've worked in radio for 20 years and I, it's like a thing. Like if you hear yourself, that's not what my head sounds like. The voice of my head sounds like. So it's, it's just like a common thing. And that's always when I have a podcast uh, clients, I'm always like, you're going to hate your voice. You're going to listen back to it. It's never going to go away. Just accept it. Like, it's just a thing. Like, and I apologize for, for being so sporadic. You and I had actually a podcast set up for mid-December, but I got total and complete laryngitis right before the wedding, and it didn't come back. I lost my voice December 1st, and it didn't come back till December 24th. And you heard it. It was very squeaky. So I don't know if I have nodes or maybe you can diagnose me live on air, but it, it was uh, just come. I have the worst laryngitis. If I get a cold now, it's just it immediate. So please, what's wrong with me, doctor? I have no idea. All that's right. Why that's why we went to anesthesia. So I don't have to. You sound like that. you sound like my in network doctor. I have no idea what's wrong with you. <laughs> I'll refer you to someone who can figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. So, where did you start out? Why did you become a doctor? What are what are your credentials? You mentioned anesthesiologist, which is really one of the most high pressure jobs. My mom's an RN, and she always tells me that you guys have the most stressful job of anybody in the OR. Yeah, our job is actually probably ninety five percent boredom and five percent terror. And that's, <laughs> uh, it, it's probably more like ninety nine to one. The better, you know, uh, if you can work your practice the right way so it, and, and if it's anybody so doesn't know they're the people who who put you under the gas and put you to sleep and keep you asleep right i mean the joke is it's ten dollars to go to sleep it's a thousand to wake up right <laughs> um so uh, when it comes to anesthesia it's funny because i always think to myself you know my day's not very exciting you know everyone says, oh it's a high pack it's stressful whatever and then uh then i have day like today where i walk in someone's had a they had neck surgery yesterday on their spine and uh, mm. on their cervical spine their neck spine and they had a hematoma. So they were, it was closing their airway and they couldn't breathe in the ER. And they came down and I had to intubate him uh, to help out one of my partners. And so I'm like, oh yeah, this is kind of why it's, it's sort of a big deal. Cause you know, it can be kind of stressful and you just sort of forget those things when it turns out fine. So it's like the thing um, you're a professional because you know what to do when things go wrong and yes. rarely things go wrong because you're a professional, but when they do, you want somebody mm -hmm. with experience like yourself. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. And I talk to the, the medical students who work with me and I say, you know, when it comes to being a professional in really anything, things go wrong all the time. And uh, there are days when, for whatever reason, just not working for you, right? Like, you know, there are days when Michael Jordan couldn't hit his shot. But but eventually he just keeps, he, he as a professional, you sort of work through, you figure out what's wrong and you correct it usually, right? And you recover. And that's sort of what being a professional is. And so in medicine, you know, I'll see these, these med students have trouble putting IV in or maybe intubating someone, putting breathing tube in. And I said, you know, there are days when I can't get an IV in for a couple tries. And then you, but the professionals are the one who just gets through and can manage to still get, perform the task, even though they're having a rough day for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so let's hop back to like, why, why did you become a doctor? I mean, how did you decide on anesthesiologist? What was the process like? Where did you go to school? Give us your credentials because that's very important. We're going to talk about COVID today and everybody needs to suss you out. Well, it was three weeks online. It was actually, <laughs> uh, so I went at undergrad. I liked math and science. I went, did my undergrad at university of Michigan. I decided to go engineering. My, my father was a physician uh, and I thought, Oh, that seemed pretty interesting, but I don't know. 
maybe I want to be a doctor. I don't know. He was, he's not a doctor in the traditional sense that, you know, he didn't have to take call. He worked at student health actually at Michigan state university during my years growing up during uh, elementary school and high school. So he had a very, you know, non-traditional job. He didn't work holidays, didn't work weekends. It was kind of a boring job for him because uh, he used to be the everything doctor up in Northern Minnesota. And that my mom just couldn't handle it. I mean, he was like, you know, the coroner, the delivered all the babies, oh and all, everything. He loved it, but <laughs> she's like, people come to the door and they have problems and ask her and, and he's always on call. Right. And so that was sort of the trade-off. So anyway, so I thought, well, maybe if, if I go to college, I like, maybe I'll just do engineering because if I don't end up liking engineering, I can just maybe go to med school. And I did nuclear engineering and I got my bachelor's in that. And probably about my, between my junior and senior year, I realized that, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't feel like an engineer. So maybe I'll just med school. And so, so that's kind of how I ended up in med school. I ended up at University of Iowa. Uh, met my wife there, who's a pediatrician. We got married. We ended up doing a residency training there too after traveling all of the Midwest and realized that we liked the training programs there. So I was in Iowa City for eight years and then wanted to get back to Michigan. I grew up in Lansing area uh, and then um, settled in West Michigan, Grand Rapids area. And I've been in private practice ever since. I'm actually a faculty at Michigan State University's College of Medicine all of our uh, all of our staff are, and so I teach medical students and residents occasionally, and then um, I sort of subspecialize a little bit in perioperative pain, which is basically nerve blocks. And so I kind of do everything. I take care of little babies all the way to you know people who are hundred years old, hmm. uh, but I don't do the high risk peds. I I don't do the cardiac stuff mainly because I don't really like doing the, doing that stuff, and I do a lot of outpatient stuff. So I work at eight different locations around town, mostly outpatient procedures from and. Uh, with a couple and regular hospitals. Hmm. And, and so you have a podcast, the Paradox Podcast, um, and you started this, I mean, was it April of 2018 I just saw? I mean, it was right. going way back. Why, why did you decide that you wanted to start a podcast? And what was the podcast about until, oh, roughly March of 2020? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I there are certain things in medicine that, I didn't like, and that I wanted to sort of talk about. I had three episodes in mind. And so I thought, well, I can do a couple episodes. No one knows who I am. I'm a nobody, right? I don't, not anyone famous. So maybe I'll get a couple people to listen. And uh, I was inspired by, you know, some libertarians and also just podcasts in general in the sense that I used to listen to the radio because the last thing I wanted to do leaving the OR is listen to more music. And I always kind of like talk radio, but you could never find, you know, the niche, whatever it is. Like I want to listen to, Michigan State basketball. I don't want to listen to things about hockey and people calling in and commercials and all that stuff. And so I got into podcasts. And then a couple people just said, when I was listening to them, they said, you know, you can start your own podcast. I said, okay, I guess I'll do that and see what happens. And my wife, you know, rolled her eyes, but was supportive as always. And, uh, you know, I said, I promise I won't spend a lot of money doing this. And you can actually do it <laughs> that, that that, That's like, I'll just buy one gun. I won't spend much money. And those right. people, yeah. I just need yeah. one grill. Yeah. And so I, I started with a plan of talking about a couple of things, direct primary care, um, the credentialing process in, for physicians, and just healthcare in general, the fact that it's a third-party payer system and it doesn't work very well. And I was very pessimistic about healthcare in general. And it wasn't until I started my show and started talking to all kinds of people who are doing innovative, interesting things in the healthcare space, despite regulations, despite the, the laws, and despite all the sort of obstacles put in their place, people find really cool ways of delivering care and doing things. I mean, the ones everyone knows about who are libertarians, you know, like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma with Keith Smith, but all kinds of other people doing, you know, telehealth and just other ways of delivering care. It, it's been really encouraging to me in general. And um, 
it's actually changed the way our practice works too. Our we've hmm. doing things different with our insurance, for instance, and um, and so that was sort of the, the the genesis of the show. And I just started talking, and I actually have had pretty good following, considering I don't have any, you know. <laughs> big backing and I'm still working. How dare you? Well, you do, you do now. No, it's, you know, it's, um, it's hard to start a podcast and, and just out of nowhere, but you know, you have managed to keep it light and interesting and, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to Vaughn, one of our uh, staff researchers. He has loved your podcast from the beginning and has listened to almost every episode, I think. And he, he was super excited when you were coming on because he, he just said like, this is a natural fit talking about some of the evolution. So when you look at some of the things that made you more positive about your industry, like what are, what are a couple highlights? What are two or three things that stood out in innovation and medical care that made you go, all right, maybe I'm being too negative about this particular space. Yeah. I mean, I think direct primary care is the, the one that jumps out and that's just a different way of delivering primary care where you use a membership based model and you move away from insurance uh, and in along those same lines, there are a number of people who are providing surgical care, who are providing other sorts of ways of care that don't use traditional insurance. Uh, and so I think those are very encouraging to me. I've also gone a year and a half almost without insurance, tried out with a sharing ministry and saw how that worked. And I just I think it just seeing the alternatives and recognizing that when it comes to innovation and it comes to entrepreneurs, you see Basically, you see when there's a, a large enough delta, you know, a gap between what you can deliver care and what it actually costs like off the rack, you know, the rack rate, and you recognize there's such a huge amount of money that can be saved that even if, you know, no matter how many regulations you put through, how many laws you pass, when there's an alternative that is so much that delivers better quality and at, at a lower price, it will succeed. And I'm much more encouraged by that than I was in the past. You know, I think a good example is like, you know, look at Uber, right? Like no one's going to want to go back to just having taxi cabs anymore. No one's going to want to go back to life without Airbnb or, you know, other online options that dramatically lower the cost of, of uh, you know, unlock capital, right? And so I think there, although there are large over, you know, sweeping, overarching problems within healthcare, all the industries, there are people who are finding ways to get around these things, mainly because of, because of cost and the quality they can get. And so I'm encouraged. And I think that's where the, that's where the real change comes, right? It's not sweeping legislation is what we see. It's on TV and, um, but it's, but where the real changes happen is people who find ways to solve problems. We didn't even know we had, or ways of solving it, things we have never dreamed of. Well, that's one of the things that I love about podcasts is that you can get granular on things. Like if you, if you, like you mentioned about, um, you know, sports talk, that industry is NFL, maybe some NBA, maybe some, you know, unless there's a scandal in baseball and hockey, then you'll talk about that. <laughs> um, maybe you'll talk about racing, but mostly just in the, in the NFL, even in the summertime. Uh, and it's so homogenized. And so much of our, our culture, I think, has just been centralized through these mega, mega corporations that it, that it sort of becomes a little uninteresting. And so with podcasts, you can niche down. So if you're watching the six o'clock news, you're just sort of assuming everything in med- the medical industry is terrible because they cover politicians talking about how bad it is. But, you know, I'm I'm looking at actually switching doctors to a DCP, a direct primary care physician. Um, so people can go back and listen to my podcast with Matt Allen about health insurance and, and me looking into new health insurance schemes. Um, I decided to stay with my employer-based insurance 
But we looked at the Christian ministry, like you mentioned. We looked at some high-risk insurance plus the Christian ministry. Uh, And when I had COVID this past uh, September, when I had Delta, you know, my doctor was like, well, I I don't know, just take some Tylenol, you'll be fine. You know, there was no no discussion of, I don't know, if you're feeling this or that way, maybe go to the hospital for the antibodies or some of these different protocols. There, you know, it, was, it wasn't even talking to him. It was just like through messaging through the nurse. And then in um, December, when I got really sick, uh, th- you know, before the wedding and after the wedding, um, I... I, I I think I got pneumonia. <laughs> My mom, who's an RN, was like, you really need to call your doctor because you shouldn't sound like that. You're really bad. You know, and, and he, he prescribed some antibiotics, but never had me come in. He just couldn't see me. No time, no ability. And I'm just thinking about these experiences. of I've never really been a sick person. I, I mean, I've only ever really had, you know, a few colds here and there. But for six months, I've just... Like COVID ring me uh, for for a month, and I got three or four colds, and it's really Doctor Larson. You know what it's like. You have kids. When you have a kid going to daycare or to school, now all of a sudden they're bringing everything home to you. Um, but I, I mean, talk about the DCP because I'm looking at my situation. Going, I'm 38. I'm not getting any younger. I'm I'm still overweight. You know, despite my best efforts. Um, what happens when something? significant happens or how can I even prevent that if my doctor I haven't taught I haven't seen in five years or talked to in person you know on the phone even when I have these big issues you know it just doesn't seem to make any sense to me why I would continue to see somebody there's got to be a better way and then my friend Matt told me about DCPs can you talk about what that is what that you know spells for the medical industry and and do you participate in it as a as a personal choice Right. So I think there are two ways to look at DPC, and that's direct primary care. One is from the from the vantage point of the patient, and that'd be you and, and me, because I have a DPC doc too. In fact, actually, my doctor is the one who was uh, on, I think it was my episode two, why I left medicine and went to DPC. Um, yeah. And uh, Dr. Ahmad is great, and I've actually had her on a couple of times. So if you look at it from the patient perspective, <clears throat> excuse me, it's it's advantageous because it's sort of like you're looking for someone who's to maintain your health versus someone who's just treating you for episodic care. Right now, when you go in for care in the traditional sense, you know, you're calling, you're calling because maybe you have an annual physical, but for the most part, people are like, I get sick, I call in and I have to get it scheduled. And those offices make their money by you showing up, right? That's how they make their money. Uh, you know, HMOs, they actually have capitation, so they get paid by the patient, but they're still making money with copays as you're coming in for most traditional insurance. There's no incentive for them to um, keep you out of their clinic. They, they want as many as they can, but they also want it not to spend, take much time. And so people all feel that, right? Like you go in and the doc's trying to see six people an hour or maybe even more. You know, to, and so they ha- you're seeing other providers, you're seeing you know, nurse practitioners or PAs, or you know, you're spending most of your time in the nurse and waiting around, and then you get your three minutes with the doctor and you get their prescription for whatever. Um, it's very much a, a mill in that sense. You know, you're just kind of, it's a churn because they want to get their, to, their, their revenue is by how efficiently they can get people in and out, but they have to get people in in order to make money. And so they, you know, want to get you out. Direct primary care kind of turns that on its head, right? So direct primary care is a membership base. So you say, hey, I want you to take care of me. They say, great. 
it's fifty dollars a month, right? People are used to membership-based care for all sorts of things, you know, from your subscription, you know, streaming service to gym memberships, whatever. And so for them, they say, okay, it's fifty dollars. And so the value proposition for the doc is, well, I know I have a set amount of patients uh, with a certain amount of revenue. I know what my revenue is, and I know it's you know fifty dollars per person. Let's say, I know how many patients I need in order to maintain a salary, so I can see about a usually it turns out to be about a fifth or a quarter of the amount of patients I'd have to have in a regular patient panel if I was working a traditional insurance model. So now instead of having 2,000, 2,500 patients in my panel, I only have 500, maybe 750. You know, it depends how aggressive you want, how much you want to work. So you know your patients way better than you did before. Also, if I have 24-7 access to the doc and I can usually use email, telehealth, texting, I can, you know, say, hey, I've got this going on or whatever. And, you know, most things don't need to require you to go into the office to be seen. Some things do. But if you don't, you can prescribe something over the, you know, if I've seen you 10 times, I know you get ear infections all the time. I don't need to have you come in so I can look at your ear, right? Or whatever it might be. I can just go ahead and prescribe you the, the medications to the pharmacy. In which case, you know, you've saved yourself a visit. It's convenient for you. It's convenient for me as a, the doc. I'm just taking care of people. And I'm only seeing maybe four or five patients in my office per day. But that also means that if you come in for, let's say, your annual physical, we can spend like an hour, hour and a half. It's no big deal. We can chat and I can find out all about you. Also, a lot of states allow physicians to distribute medications in addition to prescribing them, which means they are dispensing as the term. So it's really inexpensive. And so I can then give you most of the, the, the generic drugs. Most of them don't have controlled drugs in their office, but you know your hyper intensive medications or for your thyroids, they can, they can distribute that to you, which gives them, you know, they usually just charge at cost what wholesale prices. So it's pennies on the dollar compared to what you pay even with a, the copay at the pharmacy. But also the added benefit is if I'm that doc prescribing it, I'm like, Hey, Chris, I haven't seen you for two months. I gave you a one month supply for your antihypertensive medication. <laughs> you shouldn't have any left. Right. Or why are you getting a refill? That's supposed to be, that was supposed to be a one-time-a-day drug, not twice a day. And so, so you can pick up on problems a lot sooner than others. And mm. Yeah, you're almost that, incentivized to keep your patients healthy as opposed to just churning them when they're sick. Absolutely, right? And our office, a good example for our office at, for anesthesia is we had a person who was our IT guy, and he would come in and you pay him every time he came in to fix something. We then switched to a service where like, okay, we pay you guys this much a month, you get everything moving, and their whole incentive was to stay out of our office, to right. not have things break. Yeah. And so they can fix things remotely. They can, And as long as things are working, you don't care how it's done. You just want it to be as smooth as possible and you know, as efficiently, right, as a business. And your body is no different, right? I mean, you want people to know how you work and how to keep you healthy. And the nice thing about the DPC is now, if I've if I've removed the whole element of billing and coding and mostly a lot of the electronic medical record keeping, which is generally most of that is nonsense stuff like you know, <laughs> I'm asking you every time if you you know wear a seatbelt or something, and I can tell you as an anesthesiologist, I mean I care globally that you wear a seatbelt, but I don't <laughs> need to know that information when you come to the hospital. Right. But that's all asked every person who comes in, right? So there's a lot of stuff garbage that goes in the EMRs. So if you remove a lot of that stuff from the from the primary care office. It makes it not only more enjoyable visit for the doctor, it's, you know, you're actually focused on the patient a lot more. You can find out more about them. Uh, and so just, it makes the, the process a lot simpler and it, and you have no overhead or not no overhead, but you have dramatically less overhead, right? You have an office with maybe, you know, it's a tiny waiting room because you're not, don't have a lot of people waiting. You have a couple of basic lab supplies. You have one exam room probably. 
you don't have to have any offset at all. My doctor doesn't have any, but she kind of has a virtual assistant, but for the most part, she does all the scheduling herself. She can hire someone to do it if she wants, if she wants to, but you, I mean, your overhead is tiny compared to what it was before. And so the amount of patients and the amount of revenue you generate is a lot less. And so it just, it just makes a lot more sense. It's just, yeah, it's a lot simpler. These are difficult to scale. And so that would be one of the the drawbacks of something like this. Like, you know, if you want to have everyone take seeing direct, direct primary care, you got to have a lot more practices and they're also these little mom and pop sort of operations. You can scale them up a little bit. And so that's the thing they're sort of trying to figure out right now. But so do you, do you, do you, does does a DPC basically take like a pay cut to not have the hassle or is it, is it a little more lucrative, you know, for, for a doctor? It can be either. And so that's the thing. So it, it can't, it depends on how hard you want to work. If you're direct primary care, I mean, part of it is trying to find patients because of course you can imagine uh, you know, it's it's a different way of practicing. Most people are not kind of used to it. A lot of people think, oh, it's like concierge. And yeah, some places you could just call it concierge. But it's <laughs> concierge usually is is involves insurance, and then you pay on top of insurance. That's usually what people refer to in concierge. And so if you talk to direct primary care docs, they'll say, yeah, I'm not concierge. I'm direct primary care. But I've talked to some people who said, you know what, I just call myself concierge, even though it's membership-based, because that's what people know and understand and they're actually maybe it's like a higher end of town, part of town. It actually works for them, like from a marketing standpoint. When you look at the the DCPs and where they're located in Indianapolis, it's in Carmel. It's in the the northern part of the the city. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so, so well, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I would just say one other thing about the direct primary care. It because of you're sort of running the business as a doc, you can tailor it so you can be really busy and make more money. You can do it less and make less. You can do a lot of free care. You can provide, um, you can have alternative ways of paying things. Like you can pay every other month. You can pay every week. You can say someone could, you know, they're not going through hard times. You can get, let them go for a couple months. Things you can't do in the normal, um, in normal insurance based business. My doctor, a lot of her, she speaks Spanish. So a lot of her patients actually don't have any insurance. They don't have really, they just pay cash or something because, uh, I think like half her population are Spanish speaking, maybe even more than that. Uh, so she can serve and, and she's very affordable. I mean, 50 or 60, I think it's like except $65 for a month. That's pretty affordable for people who don't make much money, right? I mean, that's like a cell phone it, coverage. And so yeah. that's something that is a, that is within reach for, mo- for people who don't have any means. And so it's actually much more affordable than trying to like carry an insurance policy, you know, with co-pays and all that kind of stuff too. So so here's my fear about doing it. And I think I have a very common male problem. I am both simultaneously a horrible hypochondriac that spends too much time Googling. I'm, I'm Dr. Google. Oh, uh, I, it's <laughs> I, I, especially as I've gotten like become a sickly person for over the f- past five months. Like, well, obviously I have an enlarged heart. There's just no way around it. Uh, meanwhile, it's stress. Um, so, so I, I'm just a terrible hypochondriac, but I also don't want to go to a doctor that will pay attention to me because I don't want them to find things that are wrong with me. Um, I think, you know, oh, well, if I go to the doctor, surely I, I had, um, two pieces of Toblerone earlier. So obviously I'm diabetic, you know, like, it's just, it's like that weird thing where you, you are overthinking all of this stuff. And I just think that's like a very common, I'm sure every man listening to this kind of has that thing, especially as you get to 38 and you've never had to go to the doctor, didn't have health insurance my entire twenties, never have had a procedure of any kind. Like I just haven't had any, had much use for doctors. My parents and grandparents haven't been sickly. So, you know, should I go to the doctor? Like, how, how do you deal with that kind of, 
I don't know that I want to go to the doctor, even though I'm 38 and 250 and, and, you know, everyone else in my family's on blood pressure medicine. Like, how do you, how do, what, what do you say to the people who are listening that kind of think like me about that stuff? Well, I understand it. I mean, I, I'm there too, in the sen- in some sense. I think, you know, there's always a fear. You, you're always afraid to lift up the hood because you don't know what you're going to find. And I, we, we say that all the time in medicine, right? Like you, someone comes in, they've got belly pain. We think, oh, they've got appendicitis. They do a CT scan. Like, oh, it's not appendicitis. But there's a mass in your kidney. We're not quite sure what that is. Uh. And then you get that worked up. And then weird stuff happens. I mean, so when I'm, as, as an anesthesiologist, I see all this where they, I'm at the very end of the line for the most part in the sense that, you know, you've had your two months of workup and then you end up with me. <laughs> right. <you're laughs> I had a guy, I had a guy who came in once and he wanted to get his hip replaced. And he's an older gentleman, obviously. Uh, so, you know, one of the standard workups is you get an EKG. Well, look kind of funny. So they did another heart exam. I'm like, Oh, well, it turns out that uh, you got some blocked coronary vessels. So you're going to need a, you can't get your heart done, or you can't get your hip done. We're going to have to do, um, we're going to have to do bypass surgery. So he had bypass surgery. And then when he's in the hospital, he started having some problems, uh, or and they realized that he had some a blocked artery in his neck, and so he had to have that. See, fixed. as you're saying this, I am having all of these pains in all those places. Well, you're so not, you're just... but you're not 72, Chris. So don't don't feel too <laughs> you bad. Don't 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 uh, know where I've been. <laughs> right. So uh, and then of course he had belly pain, and then they found a mass in his kidney. And so I saw him for his hip surgery, but it had been a year mm. since he the whole thing started. So that's the that's the fear people have. I mean, I have that too. Like I go and I'm like, well, I'm going to get my PSA for prostate uh, lab test. Maybe it's obvious. I don't know. I mean, if I don't look, I'll never know, right? Right. Until it's too late, right? And so the nice thing about having someone who knows you and who is like, you know, your doctor and you visit with them once and maybe, you you know, maybe you're a little hypochondriac. Maybe you're someone who's like worried about all these things. They will know you and they'll know like, okay, it's Spangle. I'm not going to be worried about this. Or, <laughs> hey, this is a guy who's who's never mentioned this before uh, or he's got these risk factors. You're going to know those a lot better. And so I think in many ways that, it'll be advantageous to you to have someone who knows you well, because what you don't get in the clinic, probably where you're going now or most places is you don't get that relationship that you have where they really know who you are and know what to pay attention to. My wife's a pediatrician and she'll talk all the time about patients who she knows the family. It's like, okay, this person's calling, there must be something wrong versus this person's calling and they kind of are sort of worried about everything all the time. And so I'm not gonna be quite so good. And so I'm going to be in reassuring mode, right? As opposed Uh, and so, you know, that's part of being a primary care doc and knowing people. You have to kind of know what where you're supposed to be. Are you are you reassuring someone and saying, you know, it's okay, you're going to be right, or it's going to be that's something concerning. Let's take a look into it. Or this person's never mentioned this before. You know, will will he do what my mom, primary care? Will he do what my mom does? Okay, uh, I got a question. No, because she's a uh, nurse. So I, I know, I know what a nurse. It's, just, it's the same <laughs> as my kids complain. Like pretty much, if you're not bleeding or have a like a limb barely hanging on, you're going to be fine. Just I, I never so, got to stay home from school. Yeah, that's yeah. It's hard to scam docs, pretty much, and nurses at home for sure. Um, they're not going to let you get away with it. So, it, I, I can't. I mean, I. I grew up with a dad. Uh, my dad was a doctor. So I, you know, I have things. I'm like, I think this is a problem. He's like, ah, you're fine. And then about a week later, like, no, it turns out your finger was broken. So, uh-huh. you know, we have those things too. They're, they're not going to be probably like that though. Yeah. So I think, and I just think all of it's exacerbated by what's happening with COVID and we'll, we'll jump into the COVID talk. I will say, I want to have you back to do maybe a more extensive conversation about it. And I really enjoyed, you know, you've done a lot of conversation. I mean, maybe this is the place where I ask about, post-COVID Paradox podcast, but your 
Your uh, episode 154 from December 9th with Dr. Monica Gandhi was really good, talking about a lot of different things. And, and you approached it in the We Are Libertarians way, which was very measured, not trying to scare people, taking things seriously, but throwing out a lot of the hysteria. It was it was very well-balanced and very thoughtful, and I learned a lot from it. Um, I, I think, you know... What? How have you tried as a doctor and a podcaster? I mean, because like I always say on this podcast, like I haven't talked a lot about COVID. I, I just sort of checked out um, in the middle of, of, of 2020 because it's like nobody's listening. Everybody just wants to hear what their side has to say. They don't want to like it just sort of I stopped paying attention to it because it was, it was just it was like, it's, I don't know, you you know what I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, um, completely. But I also, you know, once you get to something like the vaccine, like whether or not someone should take the vaccine is not the it shouldn't the opinion of me, a podcaster should not factor into it. Now, if the government wants to violate my bodily autonomy autonomy and yours then that that does fall into my scope uh, uh in course of my career you know what government action is different than the pandemic and and the way i've kind of approached all of this is there's the pandemic how all of these things are operating and then the government's response to it and the government's response to it i think has obviously been lackluster not worked and um I don't even think we're borderline tyrannical. Um, I don't think it's borderline <laughs> tyrannical anymore. Um, but, you know, when when you look at it as a doctor, someone who actually does understand all of this stuff, knows what a T-cell is, knows, you know, wh- what these different variations are, and, and carries, I think, a little bit more uh, of a... I feel tremendous responsibility, like when I crack the microphone on the on the pandemic stuff... I mean, does it weigh on you more? Do you feel more confident knowing that you kind of know what you're talking about? I mean, how have you tried to approach conversing with other doctors in public about the pandemic and knowing what influence that might have on somebody? This, this will come as a shock to you, but we do talk about the pandemic in the OR and other in the hospital all the time. <laughs> in fact, it, I mean, it comes up all the time. I think, you know, uh, the hard thing about this is that I don't profess to be any sort of expert in the sense that, you know, I'm not a virologist, I'm not an immunologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm also not a public health policy expert, you know, so I, you know, no one is, no one is all those things. No one's probably even often one of those things, but- Well, some people think they are. (laughs) Well, plenty of people think they are, and and I at times do too. I think what I've, what I've tried to do in the show, and it's not any different with COVID, is I just try and learn things. And so- people always ask me like, you know, why, how do you, how do you find your subjects? Or what do you do? And I said, you know, I just see someone who writes something interesting, or says something interesting, and I just want to learn more about it. And so that's, that has been my approach. And my assumption is that people who are listening will want to learn with me. <laughs> there may be find some interest too. And I don't know from people, from the people who listen to the show, it seems like I've, I'm partially right, at least there. So my approach for this has been the same thing. I mean, I speak the language and so I understand the basics, uh, the fundamentals of, you know, the, the, whether it's immunology or something. And so I, I know some stuff, and so I can talk to someone and and understand it, which helps me. Um, but you know the specifics of these things, I have to talk to people who know more than me. People who are infectious disease specialists, or immunologists, or virologists. People who do a PCR test for a living. I, unless you talk to those people and actually like are truly curious, uh, and then I think you know you have to have a lot of humility. I do my best to to not talk in absolutes because I don't feel like I know absolutely about anything in general 
anyways. I'm fairly certain in my principles and foundations of, um, of you know what I th- how I think government should work or how medicine should work or what the pandemic, you know, what policy should be. But I'm always I like to think that I will come measured in the sense that I'm not going to say anything with certainty if I if there's not certainty there. And so, as there's more evidence that mounts, you can feel more confident in your opinions. And I think when it comes to this pandemic, it has it has been a learning journey. It has really been a puzzle, an annoying one, and one that I would not want to embark upon. Uh, but it's it's that's how I've approached it. Like you know, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to find the truth, right? And and recognizing that no one, no one person has a truth and that there might be multiple truths in the sense of, you know, there might be 10 different ways to, to treat something. And if you're in medicine, you recognize this as in most, with most things in life, right? There, there's not one way to do anything. There's not one way to, to treat something. And many of them work well. Some of them, you may say, works better than others. One you might be just better at. And so I have a way I do anesthesia. My partner does anesthesia a different way. Patients both come out great at the end. And so that's just a different way of, of approaching the problem and, and successfully getting to the end. But you have to, you know, you have to have the basic foundations, obviously, what the, the knowledge is and stuff. But uh, I guess that's how I've approached the, the pandemic. And I think, you know, looking at my track record, if there's a track record, we I did an episode recently, a couple of months ago, you know, we were so, 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 so right about, <laughs> about COVID when I talked to my friend who's an infectious disease doc in Billings. I mean, we were basically dead right about everything. And that was starting back in April of 2020, um, which is actually kind of disappointing because I feel like, why should I, a dumb anesthesiologist, know all this stuff? I mean, anesthesiologists, you kind of are, um, you know, about an inch deep of a you know, mile wide of things. You know, some things, you know, obviously real well, but other things you just kind of know enough. You have to know enough cardiac physiology or pulmonary physiology to get by. And I mean, my immunology knowledge is basically from medical school, right? I just... I, I can't say that I was, uh, aside from giving preoperative antibiotics, I'm not like an antibiotic expert or dealing during the virus as much, except to know that if I get a needle stick, I might get HIV, right? I mean, that's like for hepatitis. That's right. like, the, so those things I had to, I basically had to learn uh, just from all the people I talk to and, and the things I read. And, you know, I think you look at, as someone who is not in, on team red or team blue, it makes it a lot easier actually to kind of look through, to cut through the, a lot of the noise. You can recognize people who are, committed to one team or the other for lack of a better sort of um, way of looking at it. And so you can say, okay, this person's partially right. This person's partially right. And the truth somewhere, you know, between these people. Right. And, and I think that, I think that's been helpful. And I, I think that's, you know, as a libertarian, I think it's a little bit easier dissecting politics for the same re- reason, right? Like you can listen to Democrats. Yeah. They got some things that make sense the Republicans and, but you can kind of, you can kind of, I guess, get through, the noise and figure out where the truth or what the best policy or approach might be for solving a problem. Yeah, there's there's definitely teams here, and it's discouraging yet not surprising in the least. Um, you know, and, and I spent a lot of time early on trying to learn as much about things as I could, and you listen to like there there was this one I, I forget his name. I recommended him a lot early on. He was like a nurse practitioner from England who does these uh, really good YouTube videos and watched him religiously every day for like four or five months. Read, I actually, when we moved, I just found the three reams of paper that I printed of wow. information about the the pandemic. And I printed it for a specific reason because I knew two years later, three years later, we'd look back and we wouldn't have 
things would have gotten distorted. Like everything's in a distortion field in terms of information now. Um, And so one of the things that I want to do is like sort through that and just kind of see what people said. But like, if you go back and watch Michael Ulsterholm on Joe Rogan, which was really the, the, the thing that got a lot of people, including myself kind of like, Oh, maybe we should take this seriously. Cause we did a, COVID-19 episode with uh, one of our friends from Young Voices, and he's like, ah, don't worry about it. It's like SARS V1. It's not going to be a big deal at all. You know, and you listen to Ulsterholm, and he, like, hit the panic button, and everybody freaked out because he said 800,000 people were going to die worldwide, right? So, a lot of these predictions from just the virologist and epidemiologist from the very beginning, a lot of that was true. A lot of the charts that you see from, you know, people like a Jeffrey Tucker, a lot of that wasn't wrong either. You know, it's everybody had a point, but then now it's just sort of gotten to this place where everybody's hardened their position that, you know, I'm sure everybody had an experience with a family member over Christmas where you're just going, this thing that you're saying that you learned in July of 2020 does not apply anymore. <laughs> Why are you doing this thing still? You know, it's like the like masks. Um, you know, I remember watching Fauci on one of these cable shows talking about how masks didn't work and it's a nice thing to do and maybe it'll stop the spit, but we really need to save it for PPP, so don't worry about it. Um, but no, mask mandates aren't going to be effective. Now, I didn't wear a mask till like August 2020. You know, and then, and then, you know, I'm going to the Dominican Republic and, and the, you know, here in Indianapolis, I don't know what it's like in Michigan, where you're at in the People's Republic of Michigan, but I don't have to wear a mask anywhere in Indiana, right? Like the pandemic here was over in July of 2020. Um, but in the airport, it's like, it's like worse, like somehow the pandemic has only gotten worse to the point that Fauci's now talking about mandatory vaccination to fly on airplanes meanwhile the people who run the airlines and you know the dod are saying the filtration system is good enough to not you don't need masks it's not that effective i mean but you look at some some of the flip-flops that we've had some of the inconsistencies like first everybody thinks uh, if you're vaccinated you can't spread the disease at all now i mean it's pretty obvious that vaccinated people can spread the new variant at least and everybody's still kind of stuck in that mode of like well you i don't want to be around a dirty anti-vaxxer right like i don't know it's just the people in my life who are on team covid i don't you know they're so far off from reality because they watch the news and then you know team anti-vax they're like I don't know. In some ways, they're they're more informed. I don't I don't know how to talk about this stuff because it, it just it's so so emotional for people. Um, so maybe you can help us kind of like figure that out. Like, is it is it just that the, the polarization and information? Like, how do you suss that out when you think about how to communicate this stuff and the two sides that have developed and how far off base they really are from the information that you're gathering on your show? Well. The big question, right? Uh, I, I think, you know, for me, when it comes to, it, it's two questions. One is the question, what do you do when it comes to like public policy and looking at the larger picture when it comes to you know, large, like the county, countywide restrictions or statewide or federal? And, you know, you don't have much say over that. What I get a lot is, you know, questions from, I get nurses all the time and other docs who ask me, you know, 
should I get vaccinated or, which I think is kind of funny because I'm an anesthesiologist right? <laughs> and they're asking, but, but I think, you know, if you, if you want to start your own podcast and become an expert, it's a really great way because it forces you to really get into skin stuff and you suddenly become an expert on accident. Uh, at, ele- it, right? at election time, ever, who should I vote for? for right. My exactly. I don't know. You live in Oklahoma. So, um, so what that has helped is, is I can talk to people who are kind of wherever they are in the spectrum. <laughs> and I don't mean that as a libertarian sense. Uh, it, uh, when someone comes to me, I think the first thing to do, and this is probably good for a physician in general, is to be empathetic and to understand that the people are coming to you with sincere questions or they're having, they're coming from sort of angle, some angle, they have some sort of experiences either lived or they've, you know, they know someone closely who's, who's had problems or not had problems with COVID. And so I think you just need to, you need to treat them with empathy. And by that, I mean, try and understand why they hold the positions they hold. Most likely, if you're talking to someone who is, you know, masks and vaccines and boosted, boosting and all this kind of stuff, like, you know, I don't know if we can have a family get together. I don't know all this. They're coming from, they just have a lot of fear and, and mm-hmm. anxiety. Maybe they know someone who died from COVID because I think, you know, most people know people have been sick, maybe seriously sick. That, that seems to be died. a common thing that I think you've hit on. The people that I know that are most afraid of COVID, A, they they haven't had it yet, and B, they have lost someone or know someone that's been lost to COVID. And on the other side, people who are kind of on the anti-vax crowd know somebody that have had mitocarditis or they passed away shortly after the vaccine. Like, there's, at this point, the people who are kind of like amped up one way or the other have had some experience. I think that's a good point. And so I think once you figure out what, where they're coming from, I think then you just kind of, you, you're not going to, you're not going to change anyone's position, just like in right politics, right? You're not going to talk to someone and they're going to say, oh, you know what? Marxism is not going to work. I'm going to be a free market capitalist the rest of, right? I mean, that never happens, right? It, it, it is a, you just, if you talk to someone with empathy and understand where they're coming from and why they are, it's amazing what you can accomplish, right? I think I've gotten far more people vaccinated because I'm like, because I'm willing to, to listen to people who are really against vaccines and I understand their arguments and I understand their reasonings and some of them make sense. And some of them like, you know what, that actually is not valid, but here's what, here's why I would recommend getting vaccinated or not or whatever, you know? Uh, but I think, you know, what med Twitter does, and it's been a real problem. And with public health, I just lump in that is they have a very, um, you know, it is a, you're a bad person or there's a lot of yelling. And, yeah. and he, whether it's, whether it's on social media or even from commercials, you watch TV, I mean, there's, it is so one-sided and there's, there is a lack of any sort of thoughtful discussion or addressing people who have concerns aside from just saying, oh, they're idiots. I mean, that's pretty much what it comes down to. Or like, look at the hospital. We're overwhelmed. How could even, you're a terrible person for even entertaining that idea <laughs> where it's probably, there's, there's probably a reason that person feels that way. And, you know, you can just, you can show them numbers. You can say it's actually really busy or whatever. And it's amazing how much you, how much success you can have by just showing people some facts and you're actually listen to them. Rarely do we listen to each other. And I think that's the, you know, you got to be empathetic and you actually have to listen and then you don't just kind of drop truth bombs all the time. And I think that's, you just have a regular conversation. I don't know. I mean, that's, it sounds dumb, but I think that's probably the best way to ever to approach someone and ex- not expect to change someone's position the first time you meet them. But yeah. just, you know, you're, you may be planting a seed of doubt. Maybe you're just saying, Hey, here's something you might look into or whatever. And you'll, you'll be successful. I mean, some people are too far gone, so to speak, and they just need their tribal leader to tell them to call off the dogs. But, um, the, the biggest thing for me for, from a frustration standpoint is, is big bureaucratic policies that don't make any sense that are 
because of bureaucratic policies, you can't adjust. For instance, <laughs> I actually just tweeted this out today, but I went on, I went, we have drinking fountains in our hospital. They're all turned off. <laughs> we have known since last summer, 2020, so almost 18 months ago, that there is not any fomite, so like surface contamination that spreads COVID, almost zero. I'm pretty much zero. And yet we have turned off our drinking fountains. Now it's a small thing, whatever, right? Sure. It's, uh, I can't think of why people would close, turn off their drinking fountains unless, A, they don't want people to drink. Well, I know they sell drinks in the cafeteria and we sell it all. So it's not like they don't want people to drink. Are they worried about people gathering at the drinking fountain? I've never been to the hospital and seen 50 people in line around the corner to get the drinking fountain. Right. I mean, it's, uh, and so I, I actually liberated a drinking fountain today. So I just I plugged <laughs> it in. I took the sign off the wall and I kind of hid the sign that said, you know, due to COVID-19. I don't know. Maybe I'll get in trouble for this. But I think, you know, at some point we just have to accept the fact that when there's, there are policies that we know that are foolish, we need to just, you know, just maybe need a, just a tiny bit of resistance. And, uh, you know, I was at CVS, SVS last night getting some, helping some, a couple get some eyeglasses. And they too had, you know, they have, it's a medical facility, which is always funny that you go into the optometrist, optometrist office and now I have to wear a mask, but I don't have to wear a mask anywhere else. It's really kind of strange, like next door, the pet food store. But, uh, you know, they wash down all the glasses after you try them on. They have their drinking fountain turned off and they have a little, you know, footprint things on the, all these things that we know are of, of no benefit, right? Yeah. And um, I think- yeah, I when you when you have... look at the the spike in Victoria in Omicron COVID cases, when they have the most <laughs> strict lockdowns in the world, you have forced vaccinations, strict. You can't go anywhere and do anything. Huge contract tracing. You look at the numbers between Indiana and Michigan, and and the lockdowns that you experienced under Whitmer versus Holcomb, or the numbers between us and California, or Florida and California. Like California had all these strict res- restrictions, and it. They're in the middle of the pack, as you mentioned on your podcast. Like, I, I guess it just, to me, it, having lived through the 9-11 era, why am I still taking my shoes off at the airport? It serves no real benefit other than yeah. nobody wants to be the politician that reverses that. And when you start expanding the vaccine passport stuff to not allow unvaccinated people to go to restaurants, there's not going to be a recourse for it. You're going to have people who are abused. The system's not going to work because it will be underfunded. It will be, you know, it's like, even if you are uh, on the team COVID camp, you know, you're not on on my camp, which is like, it's immoral to force people to to take a pharmaceutical product to, to, uh, you know, interact in the marketplace. Like, look at the utilitarian aspect of it. It's not working. It's not going to work. Why are we doing some of these things? And, you know, I got in trouble for using my cell phone in the customs and border area on the way back from the Dominican. And she's like, put your phone away. And I was like, why? She's like, because it's a rule. I said, how is me trying to FaceTime my stepdaughter a national security risk? Well, you can explain that to the customs. Like, okay, so I'll just go to jail because I don't agree with your dumb rule. Like, you know, it's these dumb rules that we have lived under for 20 years that make no difference, and we're doing it all again. We haven't learned our lesson because 25% of the population is misinformed on how dangerous it is, and the other percent is, you know, misinformed on that it is dangerous. Like, that, those two have to fight. I don't know. It's driving me crazy. 
Um, I, I'm with you. I yeah. feel the same way every day. And it's, it, I think in many ways it's driven by fear, right? Like yeah. you can do, kind of push through any sort of policy if you, if you get people worried enough about it, uh, one way or the other. Right. And so I think that's uh, the, the nice thing about this whole thing, I think is that when it comes to vaccine passports specifically, is that there's not a utilitarian argument to do them, right? Mm-hmm. Like you could argue that there was a reason to do all these security checks. And if we had all this stuff, we could prevent bombs getting into the air airports and stuff right i mean there's a guy who tried to set his foot on fire whatever it was and of course detroit Detroit, he was going to take you out yeah yeah right no one had actually noticed there's no one left in detroit anyway so (laughs) um if that was but there's no you know there's no argument for this sort of policy of course you and i know that if this sticks around that it will be expanded to other things that probably do make sense like do you you can't come to this restaurant you can pull your vaccine or you know, there could be ones that are like very sensible in the sense that they're sensible vaccinations. But, um, you know, is that something that you want to have? You don't want to have that infrastructure in place because there may be a time when there is a utilitarian argument, but there may not from a freedom standpoint and freedom movement and, you know, connecting business, et cetera, that you don't want those things in place. And so you want to crush these things when you can. I, I mean, I do think we're in some way fortunate that this is acting just the way I expected the respiratory virus to act in the sense that you cannot have lasting immunity to it, uh, but you will, and I, I hesitate when I say that because it's, con- it's confusing. You won't have sterilizing immunity to this virus You're, that lasting. You'll have um, Meaning you can't, you cannot vaccinate. You can't get infected. Yeah, right. So this is the thing that's confusing, of course, is that the vaccine was never intended, designed, expected to prevent you from getting infected. It is only designed to prevent you from getting a serious illness, um, hospitalization, death, et cetera. So it keeps it in the upper respiratory tract, which is where you want a normal cold is, right? It gets your sinuses, maybe your your nose, whatever, and you feel miserable for a couple of days and then you're fine. It doesn't cause a systemic problem with like your heart problem. Those things can happen. Uh, They do happen to people and kids, but they're very rare. And so that's what you want this virus to do. You want to have the long-term immunity, the cellular immunity, uh, with the T cells and B cells that say, hey, there's a problem. Let's go take it, snuff it out. But you still get infected and you're still sick for a couple of days and probably can transmit it, which is all the virus cares about, right? Getting to the next person. But we have conflated what a vaccine does, assuming they're all the same, et cetera. And so people say, oh, see, it's not working. Or people thinking that it's going to like some sort of um, force field, or you, if you just keep getting boosted enough, or you pick the right variant booster, you're going to be prevented from getting sick. That will never, ever, ever happen. I mean, I think that was our assumption when we were talking back in April, and that has borne out to be absolutely true. Um, by now, I, I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, someone basically saying, like, even if you get a vaccine, and I remember being like kind of terrified by it because it was. A, a period in early summer where people were saying, well, this these lockdowns could last five years. And one of their arguments was that you can't get a vaccine. You, you can't get a vaccine within five years. I think Gates was talking about it. Like I you, was saying that. Yeah, yeah you can't. It, it'll take too long to get a vaccine. And if you do, it's a coronavirus, so it replicates fast. And so it's why you have the flu shot every year is because you can't technically deal I, I may be getting some of this wrong no, you're but, right that people say that but I yeah think that's but yeah. And, and so now it's the only solution and the only way that we're going to get out of it i'll do this for you and i i have noticed in a lot of my liberal friends this attitude of wait so did i get lied to like i was told that if i got this and did this i could go back to regular life and it was going to go away and now omicron's here and so did I just do this to keep myself out of the hospital? Like, 
I don't know, this, this spirit of get vaccinated for everybody kind of backfired as a message because a lot of the people who, you know, were first in line are going, now I have to get a booster? Like, how many am I going to have to have? Like, so I, I think the messaging on this has, has largely been bad. I think the the need to censor people has only made it worse. You know, you you California will put a warning on a bridge if it has a 0.007% <laughs> chance of causing cancer, but not on the vaccine. And then people, you know, in the anti-vax crowd circulate the mitocarditis stuff. Like there's, so there's just a lot of things that, that because there hasn't been a good conversation, in my opinion, about a lot of this stuff that, that has caused a lot of frustration and um, bad information. And it's left people confused, which is why I want to do this. Um, a, I want people to listen to Dr. Eric Larson's podcast, The Paradox, uh, because I think if you've heard how he is approaching this, you understand that he's going to bring the same level of scrutiny and skep- scrutiny and skepticism that we try to apply here, you know, without like evaluating both sides and trying to come to a logical conclusion and find the truth as best as we can. Um, but I want to do an episode with you, if you're okay with this, where people send us questions in advance about the pandemic, about the the virus, about whatever, masks, uh, the vaccines, all that kind of stuff. So you and I can, you can do the research to really understand uh, the question and to find the best information. I'd love to do an episode where people write in and ask some of these foundational questions. I know I will have, I have gut assertions. Uh, that I'd like to check out, but I don't have facts uh, or or real answers. So if you're willing to come back, I'd love to solicit, send your questions to editor at wearelibertarians.com, and then we do another episode specifically about the pandemic, COVID-19, vaccines, and try to get to to an answer on some of this stuff if you're willing to do that. I'd love to, and maybe when maybe we come back, it'll all be gone. Yes, right. Like uh, I'm thinking, in three weeks, this will all be cleared up. That's my wash it. This whole thing. I mean, it, it's already been two weeks. There's been a three weeks. It should be done by then. Yeah. We yeah. Well, so real, real briefly. So yeah, please. We'd love to hear your questions. I want to know what's on your mind. I want to know what's kind of causing you some anxiety. Can I do this? Should I vaccinate my kids? All that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, so we can prepare a little bit. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Dr. Eric Larson of the Paradox Podcast, the newest podcast here on the We Are Libertarians Podcast Network. Make sure you download his show, and you can catch part two of my conversation with him next week as we talk a little bit more about COVID, and we solicit your questions. If you have questions about COVID, please send those to us at editor at wearelibertarians.com, and then he and I are going to get together and have a podcast answering those questions. We know it's hard to find information out there that, uh, man, both of these sides sound sort of right. So we're going to help him navigate some of that information. So please send your questions to editor at wearelibertarians.com.